This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Welcome to Spooko. It is a horror film podcast where Shag knows a lot about horror films. I have the arrogance to pretend I know a lot about horror films and I'm learning some of the vocabulary I can share to impress the... uh, only partially horror literate, but really I'm still too scared to watch most of them. And it's called Spooko. Peach, can I interrupt? Because, mm. I mean, yes, that's the premise, but yep. we're now at episode 216, 217. Yeah, yeah. And I think over the past 200 episodes, even though you've seen the amount of horror films you've actually watched, you can count on two hands. Yes. I feel like you have a better understanding of horror than most because of this podcast yeah it's it's a very unearned sense of superiority and a very unearned feeling that i'm part of the horror community so i get to come in and have the arrogance and sense of unearned superiority to say oh i actually don't really watch horror films but i also know more about them than you do <laughs> Like, you know, did you know that Terrifier 2 was a real, like, uh, was a real escalation of what happened in Terrifier 1? Oh, you haven't heard of Terrifier. Oh, that's awesome. No, I'm sure you watch heaps of horror films. Good on you. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I get to have that unearned superiority over, um, over uh, you know, people who are probably really into the genre who, you know, it's not their fault they're not doing their fucking terrifier homework week in, week out, as you certainly are, and I sort of get to copy your notes. Like, like I get to copy your homework is kind of the way I think about it. So, I get to be a sort of pale imitation of your expertise and get to sort of piggyback on the sort of words and concepts you use. So, it's good fun. Um, Jack, and it's a very adolescent impulse to want to come in and just be superior and know more and sort of be, be dismissive. And um, while we're called Spooko, and come with me on this one, not Buko or Buko. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're not Buko or Buko. Or Mercy Buko. Mercy (laughs) Buko. We're not that either, though we are very grateful. Um, There was a book I had to tell you about um, that I received as a gift recently and read recently, and it really kind of... Um, highlighted some of the problems I expected to have with the horror community. And I certainly have with elements of the horror community, your kind of Eli Roth, your kind of lady chained up, like hands from the roof type elements of horror. Um, And I found it a really useful sort of text to be like, oh, this is the sort of shit these sorts of people are enjoying. Um, It's a Haruki Murakami novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might have read 1Q84, Shag, which, which I did some years ago. This is a novel called Norwegian Wood, which may well be – it's absolutely beautifully written, and it's beautifully written thoughts that are like 16-year-old boy's like dream <laughs> vision, right? <laughs> so, essentially, 
it's this book just chock full of manic pixie dream girls, like wandering through Japan and chock full of manic pixie dream girls being like, man, you're so cool and interesting. And like the way you talk is so awesome. Um, you, you know, and it's like, uh, like he's like, oh, it's not autobiographical, but you know. <laughs> um, so all these beautiful young women are like, oh my gosh, man, you're so beautiful. You know, we could never be together, but maybe we should be together for a short amount of time. And like, and the same fucking thing happens like five or ten times. And then the book then also concludes with the sort of older mentor type person who was an older mentor to one of the Manic Pixie Dream Girls. And it's not a spoiler because this thing's 40 years old. One of the Manic Pixie Dream Girls dies by suicide from like wanting to bang our hero too much, essentially. Like, And then they had sex and it was too great. And she was scared she'd never had sex as great again as the hero. Very autobiographical <laughs> stuff. Um, and um, the older mentor who, um, you know, they're sort of sitting down and drinking wine with and playing music with, and then he's eventually like, oh, and then I realized she was also, you know, conformed to my ideas of beauty standards. And so we also slept together. And she was also like, oh, that was so great <laughs> that I've had enough sex for my whole life. And, and, and that was the best ever. And it's this book that is this puerile adolescent fantasy. And I can't skate past it without saying it also has a very troubling sexual assault scene that I should pick apart in a moment. But... It was the kind of juvenile, stupid fantasy that even as I was reading it, I was like, people, like, Murakami having written this sucks and people having celebrated this sucks. Now, I should say that it's nearly 40 years old, but apparently it's like a super classic and, you know, this is its 10th or 15th edition or whatever. It's been translated a million times. And it strikes me that this is the kind of phenomenon I'm bumping into when I'm kind of trying to understand horror as a genre of there are a number of explanations of like, Oh, you don't get it, peach. It's cool that it's torture porn. You don't get it, peach. It's cool that the lady is chained up to the pipes above her head and her gown is partially ripped. And so it sort of led me to this feeling of perhaps there are artworks that are going to beyond be beyond my comprehension. You know, some people speak about rap that includes talk of crime and violence and go, oh, I just don't want that subject matter in my life, and so I'm not attracted to that type of art. Um, and that's the sort of art I am attracted to, and so I'm comfortable with that, but some people will say that to me, and I accept that. And so in trying to come to grips with where the horror aversion comes from, this book seemed really useful. And I should also just talk about the sexual assault because it plays on this horrific trope that's like one of the worst, like laziest and most destructive and evil sort of tropes in this sort of literature, which is essentially the excuse for pedophiles trope, right? It's the very knowing teenage girl trope. Okay, yep, yep. And uh, like a trigger warning um, here for SA, and we're not going to go into deep detail, but I'll nonetheless say we're going to discuss some SA elements. But in short, it's one of these rape scenes that is, oh, I just sort of met this 13-year-old girl who was very developed and she was, she very much knew what she wanted and she was very forward in, in sort of approaching me physically. And I kept saying, no, 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 this is not what, what I want to do. And she nonetheless forced herself upon me because she was, she had very pronounced and advanced and mature sexual desires and oof, she appeared to be very mature when she was naked. And essentially it's, like chapter one pedophile playbook of it was the child's fault, 
right? It's, and it's this like deliberately eroticized 15-page excuse for sexual assault. And I just didn't want to glance over this book without saying that is so deeply fucked. Uh, and I'm very happy to lay that at the feet of the author and to say that it strikes me that it's not in a different universe to some of the horror we consume, that turning some of the acts of violence and some of the real gory stuff, some of the really upsetting stuff into entertainment, we're kind of skating around these sort of issues. And I sort of wanted to, uh, like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to put it to you aggressively and say defend that, but I sort of wanted to say that, that, that I expect that's sort of an issue that, that, that horror fans grapple with. Shag, have you sort of grappled with that kind of thing in your horror fandom of what does appreciating and publicizing this genre mean about the sort of art that I'm spreading through the world? I mean, Peach, it feels like you're pointing towards a couple of subgenres of horror. I'm thinking exploitation. I'm thinking mm. torture porn. I'm thinking rape revenge. All very clear subgenres that have clear rules that have very explicit content for the sake of entertainment and I've, I've said this before where it's like i don't necessarily like all those things but i like mm. that they exist because i like that horror is a dangerous genre mm. i like the fact that there are things that most fans will find hate like most fans there there are a few horror fans who like every single aspect of horror like right. You know, you you will find those accounts online, those like gore hounds who are like, they just love everything. They just want to see the most fucked up stuff. And sure. But I don't think that's your average horror fan. Okay. But but I think what, what else is interesting about what you said really ties into what we're talking about today is the idea that you have just not, 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 not hugely, mm. but you've sort of, started to dissect not just Murakami's character, but mm. horror fans' character yes. based on the art they produce. Yes. And I think this is a major aspect of a term that's been huge for the past couple of years, parasocial, which was actually invented in the 50s as a way to define the one-sided relationships audiences have with the people that create their art. Art's yes. about, art is about expressing yourself, so obviously you're going to feel like you're being communicated to. And like at the end of the day, Murakami doesn't know anything about Peach. Like he's, he's not doing <laughs> Peach show and he's like, well, yeah, yeah. here's some things that Peach, <laughs> Peach. But But I think that that idea of the, the idea of a parasocial relationship, strangely enough, is such ripe territory mm. for horror because it creates this amazing imbalance. And, yes. you know, we've talked about a big part of horror is imbalance and the idea that you could all of a sudden know so much or think you know or create this idea of someone else and them not know anything about you. So you have this, like, specter in your life, this ghost in your life, this monster chasing you in your life that you've, you've never met, you don't understand before, I think is, is so interesting. It is, and it's part of the stuff that makes me worry about early Spooko, right? Because the only thing I find out about Murakami from this book is he's someone who thinks this is cool. Well, That's you, like, well you don't know that. You, you are inferring that because he wrote it. You are yes. inferring because he wrote it 
they are his beliefs. Well, 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 sorry. What I'm inferring is he's someone who thinks publishing a book that yes. contains this is cool. Yes. And and that and that in part is like the Spooko challenge, right? Like I'm very scared. Shag, I think there's an episode where I suggest that it would be uh, good and respectful to consult with First Nations people in order to create a film called Terra Nullius in Australia, like T-E-R-R-O-R. And I'm like, I, like, I'm like, I hope that's a bad dream. Like, that strikes me as a very unfortunate thing. And I'm like, I, I expect to find that awful event somewhere back in the history of Spooko. And I'm sure I've said other things that I'd like to retract. And I suspect Morikami would, would walk back some of this now that time has passed. Um, but the parasocial thing's interesting as well because it links into that Bartesian conversation we often have about the death of the author, right? About the, the line between the artist and the art they create. And so I guess what I say is all, all that can be taken to link the art to the artist absolutely is that the artist thinks the work is worth publicizing. And I think that inference arises. And so I think there is an element where criticism of the work can be laid at the artist's feet to an extent, is kind of my view. I think that's a really interesting point. Like we have definitely said things or done things on this podcast mm. that we've heard from people they don't like or we, 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 we haven't heard but potentially have switched people off. And yeah, it's mainly prey. Prey yeah, was probably the big it was one. Mainly prey. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like the responsibility kind of lies at our feet because we yep. put this out. You know, we edited it, we put this out, we didn't decide to take it down. So mm. there's 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 at over 217 episodes, there's absolutely some fucked things both of us have said or decided mm. was important. And it's our responsibility. If if you're not feeling it, yeah, it's, yeah, fuck this is all right. <laughs> I'm sorry to go deep. Shag, let's let's talk about some horror films around here. Yeah, I do want to talk about horror films because mm. we're, st- we're still on holidays. Mm. I Fucking you're still on holidays. Johnny's self-employed over here. I'm like... <laughs> Is it being self-employed like being on holiday oh, for every day? Sake, Shag. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, if I can just give you a genuine answer, <laughs> I budgeted for my first client to arrive in February 2024 yep. and now my books are full and I've closed them. <laughs> and so I'm sort of fucking terrified at the moment of the amount of people who are like, Peach, sounds good. <laughs> uh, so we're going to get back to old, like, nearly no sleep Peach pretty soon. So I I can say with some authority that, that, that poor old Peach's holiday's over. But, you know, Graverman, let's go. Let's get it. So I, I really enjoyed the experience a couple of episodes ago of finding the vacancy DVD. I like the experience of mm. setting up the DVD player, watching your DVD. So when I was in the local town a couple of days ago, I went to the local Salvos, which is mm. our version of a Goodwill run by the Salvation Army, just a secondhand store, mm. and had an overflowing DVD collection. And they were all two bucks each, so I was like, I'm going to buy some. I was like, I'm going to buy heaps of horror DVDs. And it's kind of disappointing going through these collections. These are collections that have been donated by people who don't use them anymore. So you get a bit mm. of a window into the DVDs that were taking up space in people's houses back when everybody watched DVDs and had DVD players. Mm. And just the amount of two and a half star films that people bought. Oh. You know, like your sort of Vince Vaughn comedies oh. or your mid noughties rom coms, which are all like, don't get me wrong, they're fine. Mm. But, it's like Murakami novels in a bookshelf. <laughs> but it, but it's also it's it's 
there's a moment Adele's been Adele's been really um, Adele is basically my like book muse and mm. was a big fan of the is it Marie Kondo? Yeah, she has a really good point in her book about tidying yep. that most people don't read a book more than once. Even if you love a book, rarely will you read it more than once. And so once you've read it and it's on your shelf, the actual paper isn't doing anything. It's, it was the ideas that were in it that did something to you that did something. But the book itself on your shelf isn't doing anything. And I think the same about all these films that it's like, I can't think of a single Vince Vaughn film I would want to see more than once. I can't think, think of a film I'd want to see once. But it's like, could you imagine being like, I'm going to watch all of these comedies where... Is it wedding crashes where they're like, oh, we just go to weddings because it's fun, but then I meet Isla Fisher and now we're in love. Like, it's like, why would you watch that multiple times? Well, this is landfill capitalism, right? Like, to me, this is all the stuff you bought in the years between, so 2006 to 2010 of like, man, DVDs used to be expensive. Now they're considerably cheaper. Better just just (laughs) buy heaps. (laughs) Better just buy heaps of this stupid shit. And... The sort of, you know, we we live here on the coast near a lot of like interior design shops that just looks like so much pre-landfill trash that this kind of idea of landfill capitalism has really like got in, got in my head of like, oops, like there's nowhere else that is going apart from into a big poisonous hole in the ground. I don't want to get too deep into sidetrack-o, Shag, but have I ever told you that one of the big pieces of litigation I was involved in some years ago involved leachate that's that's properly nightmarish? Have, have I told you about this? No. So I can't go into detail, so, so I'll try to anonymize this as best I can, but I acted for um, the owner of a property that was nearby what we in Australia call a tip, what I think in America might be known as a, a jump yard or, or, or like a garbage hole, in the, like a landfill spot. A garbage right? hole. I don't think anyone calls it a garbage <laughs> hole. <Yeah. laughs> um, Americans and local dogs apparently love calling it garbage <laughs> holes. <laughs> so, you, so you dig your hole deep in the ground, you fill it full of landfill and batteries and nappies and trash through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, then having like an open trash hole, garbage hole, junkyard, whatever we're calling it, in the 1980s becomes uncool. So you go put a lid on the top, and what you always do in Australia is you chuck a couple of sports fields on there to be like, hey, look, <laughs> you can come play soccer here. So anywhere you drive past a cricket ground or soccer ground in Australia, you can um, you, you know, be assured you're playing on top of like 50 metres of garbage. Now, the issue in this um, case is the issue that happens a lot in relation to these garbage holes, as the Americans call them, is that they are imperfectly sealed. And so if you get water going in there, you get stuff flowing out that is called leachate. And that flows out in thousands of thousands of litres per day. And you can see gushing channels of what is essentially decades of poisonous ancient bin juice full of like heavy metals and like corroded batteries and fucking whatever else you can think that people have been junking since the 40s and 50s before recycling existed um, all up to the 80s. And so leachate is something that has played a prominent role in my nightmares as well as fucking badly behaved dogs. Hang on. Ah. All right. But all of that, all of that aside, Mm. all of that aside is to say these secondhand stores are filled with the DVD equivalent of leachate. Yes. And it is is so depressing to search through them because – 
No one had like uh, like I'm assuming the people who had like perfectly curated horror collections have held on to these DVDs. Yes, but well, what I Alexei, did- I'm sorry to keep getting sidetracked. He joins our podcast from Blu-ray Studios whenever he comes, so his studio is full filled with Blu-rays. That's true. That and I think true. he Marie Kondo's them. I think he goes through and is like, yes, this sparks joy, this sparks joy, this sparks joy. Eh, someone else might enjoy this more. But sorry, so, Shaq, I'm, I'm just in deep sidetrack mode today. No, so absolutely. I know we said it was going to be a quick one. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I did find mm. was two films that Ooh. I put to Feel Bad Club. I just put up on social and was like, which one of these should I get? And the response for both of them was so overwhelming. Like, I was just getting notification after notification. for bo- Like, there was a clear winner, but still notification for both of them. Then mm. I was like, okay, I'm going to buy them both. And to be honest, they were two bucks each. So even though I'm trying to not buy everything, I kind of couldn't. It was like it, it, it economically made no sense to choose. I'm sure there's, there's a term for that, but it, it made more sense for me to just buy both than spend time deciding which to buy at such a small price point. Yes, I follow opportunity cost, yes. And so I bought them both. And it turns out one, of, one was a film I've never seen one was a film I haven't seen in 20 years and don't remember much about. And both of them were stone-cold fucking classics. We're going to do yes. them both, but we're going to start with the clear winner from, the, from social that everybody wanted us to cover. Today, Peach, we yes. are doing the 1990 Stephen King adaptation, Misery. Yes! Rob Reiner and Stephen King want to be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas and a safe and sane holiday season. But for novelist Paul Sheldon, it won't be very merry at all. He's spending Christmas in bed. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? This year... My name is Annie Wilkes. He won't be going to any parties. Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours. The Misery novels. I love them so. He won't be seeing any friends. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? Paul, say hello to Misery. Misery. Yes, I told you I was your number one fan. He won't be spending time with his family. Paul, forgive me for prattling away and making you feel all oogie. He'll have only one person to help him through the holidays. Catch this. Annie Wilkes. What a poet you are. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. She loves everything he ever wrote. I'd love to stay here and chat, but I'm right at the end, and I gotta find out what happens. Except this. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. You murderers! Whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. It's for the best. Misery. God, I love you. Look, I get it. 
Okay, it's another autobiographical work from Stephen King. We've just had a Murakami's autobiography where he sleeps with heaps of beautiful women. Now we've got a Stephen King autobiography where writing's just a bit weird, you guys, and weird stuff happens to cool, writer, cool handsome writers like me. Okay, so I think by now, even if you've never seen this film, you know at least a little bit about Misery in which a writer is imprisoned by an obsessive fan. Mm. And then there's a sledgehammer scene. They're probably the things you know about misery, right? Mm. They're, they're part of the cultural ocean that we all swim in. Is Dirty Bird in pop culture? Just just hearing Kathy Bates say that, mm. I was like, is this is this where like what is Dirty Bird? Kathy Bates using these like infantilized versions of swear words. I think you know, cockadoody is one of the big ones she uses. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, look, I mean, this is another Stephen King film. It's another one we haven't covered. The star Mm. is a writer. I wonder if, though, I wonder if he just is recognizant. Cognizant? Is cognizant of his own shortfalls. Like, he's like, I can't write characters who aren't writers. Like, he's like, could you imagine Stephen King trying to write a fleshed-out character that's not a writer. Like, it, it, it would distract from the film. He's like, I can write antagonists. But could, I can- you, could, you, could you imagine coaching him through it? So he comes into Shag to be like, Shag, like, I've got some ideas, but I just can't seem to disentangle the writer from this. Like, I feel like that's about a 45-minute conversation of, like, how about <laughs> it's any other job? <laughs> Here's what truck drivers do. <laughs> Here's what but, butchers do. Here's what bakers do. And it, it just comes to down, it comes down to how much of his process is collaborative because mm. I think I think if you don't work with other people, like I think we work well together because we yes. both sort of overcome each other's shortfalls. Whereas like if we were doing a podcast by ourselves, there's some things we just have to accept. And I yes. wonder if when you're a writer, you just have to deal with your shortfallings because you don't have anyone else to fill in those gaps. Yes. It's like, okay, well, I can only write writers. Cool. I'll do, I'll do. And, you know, it's worked out very well for him. Well, this kind of leads into the lost episode of The Shining, um, <laughs> The Lost Spooker, like genuinely, because um, as you will remember, there's sort of this broad dichotomy where um, I always forget the name of Fuckwit Director, where Fuckwit Director makes The Shining. Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick makes The Shining, and it's a story about a fucking wacko, alco- alcoholic, mad guy with just a bit of spooky stuff hanging around the place. And Stephen King's like, no, no, I made a crazy ghost story filled with ghosts and horror stuff. This looks like it's some weird alcoholic writer who kind of is like out of control. And there's this nice tweet that I posted up that I cannot now remember the name of the creator, but because we are improving in our practices, I want to shout the creator out. Um, A Twitter account, an X account called Cool Goblin Zone, where this creator says, look, Stephen King wrote a book about an alcoholic being scary. King himself being an alcoholic, trying to articulate his fear of losing control. But because he was an alcoholic, he also gives the character a sympathetic out, right? Stephen King says, look, I'm an alcoholic. If I'm writing this alcoholic, I need to explain that ghosts are the problem and not alcohol. And so what Cool Goblin Zone suggests is that because Kubrick never gives the Jack Nicholson character that sympathetic out, it's why Stephen King hates the movie, because essentially he views it as Kubrick saying, fuck you, Stephen King the way you go about things is a problem. Well, I think it's more that collaboration, Mm. in my opinion, always generates better results. So The Mm. Shining's a great story, a film based on a literal interpretation of it, as was created, I think, in the 90s as like a miniseries. 
is kind of three stars. But you take someone like Stanley Kubrick, who has his own vision, takes what Stephen King does well, combines it with what he can do, and create. I mean, it is a masterpiece. You, you're being a real contrarian if you can't see the value. It's like people who are like, I hate the Beatles. It's like, it's fine if, and I'm kind of like, I, I don't necessarily love the Beatles songs, but yeah. I can appreciate how important they were in music. And it's ditto for The Shining. Yeah, I get it, type, type territory. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what mm. I mean? But anyway, but anyway, so I think this is one of those occasions where a director with real chops who was on a real run, Rob Reiner, who yeah. I, like, let me, let me take- You've Got Mail and stuff like that after When Harry Met Sally. So this, this film was released in 1990. This was Rob Reiner's run, right? 1986, Stand By Me. 1987, The Princess Bride, 1989, When Harry Met Sally, 1990, Misery, 1992, A Few Good Men. That is a fucking run, right? Like you, so you take a director who is on fire, Mm. take a story from Stephen King, but make it a thrilling film. Mm. And you have Misery, which honestly, I'm amazed it's taken us this long, but I think it's because I just... I probably saw it too young and I didn't see it in the right circumstances. And honestly, the right circumstance was being in a holodad state of mind, was having limited entertainment options, was wanting to break out the DVD player and thus watching it on DVD, having that proper sitting down, appreciating the whole film DVD experience. I watched it with Adele who used to watch it a, a lot with her family when she was a bit younger. So it was like it was a really nice experience for both of us. And I was just blown away with how good this is. And even like even to the point where at the start I was like, yeah, but is it horror? And I was like, well, it's Stephen King, so it counts for Spooko. But by the end, I was like, it is horror. And here's why. Yes. So I a horror film, it's always what I said before. It's like a horror title isn't a description, it's a promise. Yes. And so a title like Misery, which has a double meaning in this film, but a title like Misery, if I don't get to see abject despair in this film, then the title has over has overpromised and the film's weak. And halfway through, I was like, yeah, this is pretty bad. But then it gets to the end and you're like, oh, okay, no, I see. I get it. Yes. And it's 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 wonderful. So Peach, I'm so excited. This is this yes. is one of those like, I know we pay out how boring it is to watch movies, but <laughs> and I know this podcast has become so many different things, but at the at the end of the day, this was well, at the beginning of the day, this was a podcast about my love of horror films, and this mm. really reignited that love. Yes. Best film of 2024. <laughs> All right. So famed novelist Paul Sheldon is the author of a successful series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character named Misery Chastain. Great name. Great name, right? Or He's always good with names. Yeah. I think it's really interesting for this film of the fact that Paul Sheldon, the main character, played by James mm. Kahn, who effectively has become a cultural footnote in 2024. Mm. But listen to who this role was offered to before he got it. Okay. William Hurt, Kevin Klein, oh Michael God. Douglas, okay. Harrison okay. Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, and Warren Beatty, who all for various reasons had to turn it down. That Okay. Like, is James Kahn... Like, that's like, the, they're the, the most famous actors of that age. Some of them continue to be famous. Well, James Kahn is like, 
I accepted the role because it was unlike any role I've ever done. And I'm like, no, you accepted the role because you were the fucking last pick. Like, come on, like, you, like, like you can you can retcon that. But at the end of the day, they were like, does anyone, uh, James Khan, do you want to do you want to do this thing? You were like, yeah, I'll do it, sort of thing. Also, the character of Annie Wilkes who was played by Kathy Bates, who was an mm. unknown at the time, went on to win the Oscar. And a, a rare, you know, horror win for an yeah. like Again, like we said, the Oscars mean nothing. I'll never watch them. Who cares? Still, yes, yes. Kathy Bates won the Oscar for a role in this after both Angelica Houston and Bette Midler turned it down. Oh, my God. Bette Midler went on to say that it was one of the biggest regrets of her life. How funny would this movie have been if it was Bette Midler and, like, Kevin Klein? Or like Dustin Hoffman and Bette Midler. It would be such a weird ben, movie. Like, in fairness, Bette Midler would have done a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I think she just would have sang a lot more. Angelica Houston would be interesting. Like, because she went on to do The Witches like a year later, I think, or two years yeah, later. Yeah, and yeah, so it was like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I've, I've got to get my misery in there somehow. Anyway, okay. So, so Paul Sheldon, played by James Kahn, is the writer of these novels starring Misery. Wanting to focus on more serious stories... He writes a manuscript for a new novel that he hopes will launch his post-Misery career. And we later find out that in the latest Misery novel, Misery dies in childbirth. And there's this awesome tension in that we know the Misery's going to die in this book. And it's about to come out. Yes. And the pre-orders have been massive. We know it's going to be huge. This book is about to come out. And we know that Misery's going to die. No one else knows. No one else will know because this is pre- pre-working internet so no one else will know that misery dies until they read this fucking book saying something nice about jk rowling doesn't come naturally to me so you can know (laughs) that i you can know that i mean it they have um set up a parallel writing career of proper like moderate success as british crime fiction novelist john galbraith i think's the name um that jk rowling uses and i say with great respect that if paul sheldon's trying to relaunch um i think it's john galbraith because i think it's jkg anyway we'll be able to find it um that the use of a pseudonym might have solved poor old uh paul sheldon's issue either way he's super famous like the local cops like paul sheldon the novelist and like he's excited as well either way these sorts of characters always piss me off because i'm like even for like one hit wonders if you create a piece of art yes. that is so resonant with the world, you don't have to create heaps of them. You've created something amazing that lives on. Like, that's mm. enough. You shouldn't feel depressed that you can't follow up a great piece of work. It is enough to create one great piece of work. I get it, though. Like, episode 100 of Spooko is probably my fave, you know. <laughs> and, and on one view, we're always trying to get back there, right? Um, <laughs> But, but, like, you can't imagine that of being like, oh, I've touched that before. I, like, I know yeah. what that is to yeah. come and do something cultural. So I know I've got it in me to get there. Uh, I, like, I think there's some peculiar kind of tragedy to that. I think it takes real maturity to adopt the view you've got. Because I can imagine being like, no, no, I can do it again. I can do it again. Well, I think the tragedy is trying to chase that cultural moment rather yes. than just trying to keep making great things. Like yes. you and me, we talk about like, we like making stuff cause we like making stuff. And I mm. will ne- like, I realized something I'm in my forties and I never want to stop making stuff because yep. that's just, that's what gives me life. Right. Yep. Like that's it. And I think that's important. I think you shouldn't give that up, but the idea that you have to just keep connecting and keep being relevant 
is dangerous and ultimately foolhardy. For me, it's really the money that drives me on. I'm really, <laughs> really about that. All right. So he's been writing this novel in Silver Creek, Colorado, which is like a really snowy town. Like there's, there's an implication that when he writes his novels, he goes to like a secluded cabin, locks down with a typewriter by himself and just writes mm. these novels. That's my cliched view of how to write a book, by the way. Like, that's sort of the only way it works in my head. Of It's like, yeah, you go away for like a six or eight or 10 or 12-week period and you come back and you've got a full book. So he has done this. We see him pop a champagne. We see him light a cigarette. We see him get in his car in this very snowy town and starts driving away. As he's driving, a snowstorm picks up. He gets caught in a blizzard and he crushes his car, rendering him unconscious. A nurse named Annie Wilkes has like a crowbar, like crows, like essentially wrenches the car door open, Mm. uh, finds him inside, takes him out and brings him to her remote home. Paul regains consciousness and finds himself bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. Annie claims to be his number one fan and constantly praises him in his novels. She offers to care for him until the telephone lines are reconnected and the local roads reopen following the blizzard. This is really important, right? He's like, I want to speak to my agent. I want to speak to my daughter. And she's like, as soon as these telephone lines are cleared and the roads are open, I'll let you phone these people and I'll take you to the hospital. Until then, I'm a nurse. I'll just care for you right here. Yeah. Out of gratitude, when she asks if she can read the new manuscript that she's noticed he has, He says yes. After she reads it, she angrily criticizes the profanity in his new work, which isn't about misery, disturbing him, but she quickly apologizes. She has this manner where she'll quickly rise to a, she'll she'll escalate conversations to a 10 with loud shouting out of nowhere. Yes, that's great, scary, like, yeah. She then finds out that the new Misery novel's been released and she's like, okay, well, this back to the Paul Sheldon I know. I'm going to go and buy this book. And th- this is Wikipedia, so it's, not, it's really truncating everything. But mm. we have this wonderful tension where she is caring for him. He's starting to get a bit suspicious because why aren't the roads open yet? Why aren't phone lines open yet? Yes. And we keep getting these updates from Annie who's like, this is the best book you've ever written. I'm at page 40. I'm at page 120. I'm at yes. page 180. I can't, this is so amazing. I can't, I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, like this is the best thing you've ever done. Like yes. it's, it's just, it's just one and it's so drip, wonderfully drip, done, drip, right? Drip, drip. Yeah. But even now I'm still at like, okay, this is a thriller. This isn't a horror film. Anyway, when she discovers that Misery dies at the end, she flies into a rage, revealing to Paul that nobody knows where he is and that she had never informed any kind of authority or his agent that she had rescued him. So good. Effectively holding him prisoner in her secluded home. And what's great about this is, is that the authorities have found his car. They think he died in the snowstorm. Nobody's connected the two of them. So mm. he is effectively trapped, right? And this yep. is when that idea of misery starts to build because it's like, oh, there's, there's not really anybody. There's no hope here. Yes. I mean, maybe your legs will get better, but at the moment they're not getting better. Maybe they'll never get better. And how can you get out of this secluded, snowy farmhouse in the middle of nowhere? Film in a tweet. Author gets house napped. Oh, hang on. Maybe I can't do that in a tweet. 
Author gets house napped by biggest fan. Yeah, hang on. No, that's not a good tweet. <laughs> so Annie brings a little Weber into the room. I think this is pre every house needed to needing to be fitted with fire smoke, alarm. smoke alarms. Because as soon as I was watching this film, I'm like, that wouldn't fly. You couldn't do that. But anyway, Annie forces Paul to burn the only copy of his new manuscript. She also provides a secondhand typewriter and orders him to begin writing a new novel titled Misery's Return, in which he brings the character back to life <laughs> that, that he can dedicate to her for saving his life. I do love how with Stephen King, you like scratch, like it's so close to the surface. Like it's it's like it's like not even skin deep. It's shallower than skin deep. <laughs> I'm like, this is exactly how I feel about the writing process. Like this is an autobiography. And and again, if he had written this film, it would have been painful. Yeah, but with yes, Rob Reiner just making it, you know, combining Stephen King yeah. with the timing of when Harry met Sally. That's actually you know, it's you're so right. Like. Producing films, I feel like, must be pretty difficult of, like, getting getting the right personalities in place and also getting all the, um, you know, all the administrative nuts and bolts in place. But that, that really is – you're so right, as always. Right? I, I mean, I always think about, on paper, we shouldn't work together as a duo. No. It, it well, doesn't – why? Oh, well, no, it just doesn't – like, we're not that similar. I think we yeah. are, but we're not. Superficially, I think we, – like, we used to be more similar superficially. yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Like, Shag, like, yeah, I, I don't know a lot about me is one of the things I'm coming to learn. So, it's, uh, yeah, like, so I'm, I'm very much in your hands on this analysis, but I'm also with you. Well, I guess my point is I think Spooko would, would be considerably worse if it was two Shags. I feel like we've heard that draft a thousand times and we actually <laughs> yeah. know for sure that, like, two Peaches or two Shags doesn't work. It's literally every other podcast with two dudes on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, look, there's a specific one that I know, like, I keep forgetting to take shots at off air with you that I just really enjoy. <laughs> like, someday when we're off air, I'll remember to take shots at it. It'll be good. All right. It's not the one you're thinking of, anyone listening. So, Paul finds a bobby pin to unlock his door and leave his room. He begins exploring the house, stockpiling his painkillers, and tries drugging Annie during dinner by spiking her wine with crushed painkillers, but his plan is foiled after she accidentally knocks over her glass. Oh, that's such good tension as well. Like, just take a sip of the fucking painkillers. So, so this is where it takes a step further, right? So this whole time we're like, oh, she's a bit loopy. She's a obsessive horror fan. Her isolation has made her a bit crazy, and misery dying has pushed her over the edge, and now we're in this situation. So far... It's almost a bit comic booky. Like, where's the real dark horror miseryness yeah, of it? Like, my favorite thing about Stephen King books by far is the way that the titles are written in red, embossed, bloody print. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, misery. Yeah, I can't. You know what I mean? Like, that's my favorite mm. part of his novels. And it's like I want to feel that in the films. And so far, it hasn't done that. But as he explores, as he explores, he finds a scrapbook called Treasured Memories. And as he goes through it, he finds essentially, I mean, it's, it's a filmmaking trick, but it's done very well, mm. essentially a timeline of Annie's crimes up to now. So when she was in med school, what are they? Well, when she was in med school, like one of the top students mysteriously died in circumstances and then Annie was the top student. Uh, there's, there's another example of somewhere in college when that happens as well. And then when she's working at a hospital, all of these newborns start dying on her watch. 
and she goes to court. They can't prove anything, but essentially the implication is until she lost her job, she was essentially killing babies at a hospital. And we know, like, this is a behavior that exists. Yeah. There, there have been English, these yeah, individuals yeah. in hospitals doing this. And the way it's handled here, I don't think it's callous. I think it just adds a mm. dark chasm to her character that, that starts to, all of a sudden you're like, okay, no, he's not locked in here with a crazy fan. He's locked in here with someone who is capable the serial killer. of the, yeah. of, but like capable of the worst possible thing you can do. Like the absolute worst thing you can do. And she has done it multiple times. Would you keep a scrapbook of that? This is my thing as well. Could you, mm. I mean, is that evidence that the fact that she just kept that, that scrapbook? Those, no, those but stories? if you've evaded detection for so long, I doubt you'd have a mwahaha scrapbook just sitting around <laughs> your house. Because, you know, surely it would pique someone's interest to be like, oh, okay, all of these very violent accidents that have benefited you in some way that you've been around, you are tre- you're literally treasuring this memory. <laughs> it just strikes me as, yeah, look, not, not, look, if I was out murdering babies, I would try to make it difficult for people to put me in prison for it, I expect. So he's been sneaking out. He's, he's explored. He's found this evidence. Meanwhile, Annie soon discovers that Paul has been sneaking out of his room. And so she's like, I need to find a way that you can't actually escape. Oh. Now, this is one of those things where it's like sometimes a horror film just needs one horrific moment. Yep. And sometimes that's kind of enough. Like I think yep. about the audition and there are horrific moments in it, but all you yep. really think about is cutting Absolutely. the beat off the piano. <laughs> like that's all you think about. So in, in the original novel, she cuts off one of his legs. Whereas in this, they were like, oh, we want the audience to sympathize with, with her a bit. And so she'll just break his feet. And what's funny about it is I actually think what they decided to go with is far more horrific than a simple amputation. So she describes a torture that slave masters would, mm. would do to slaves who tried to run away, which is like great depth to her character to be like, this is the sort of thing she knows about. Ugh. In that, you know, they would want their slaves to keep working, but they, would, they wouldn't want them to run away. So they'd essentially just make their feet unusable. And so she would put a wooden block between his two feet and she takes a sledgehammer. Ugh. And before you even know it, like they don't even build up to the moment. She just takes it and she whacks. And I didn't realize, because I haven't seen this film in so long, you literally see one of his feet go completely perpendicular. Ugh. It is it is horrifying it is horrifying it is such a great horror moment it is the moment where it takes that step to be like oh this is a horror movie and it is a it's it's so hard to describe but it's such a wonderful horror moment i would easily put it in my top 20 horror moments what's interesting is that it it doesn't strike me of like huge amount of strings swelling and huge amount of tension and will she won't she will she won't she that, that there's almost power and like bam that's what we did so the local sheriff, so th- again, Rob Reiner, there's this wonderful comic relief of the local sheriff and his really horny wife. And, <laughs> but they're really old and it's, it's kind of nice to see, like I want to be fucking till I'm 90. Mm. And it's kind of wonderful to see, you know, old people being in love and on. horny for each other yeah. and not it being a joke, yeah. which it usually is in film. Anyway, so they're, they're kind of the comic relief because they have this wonderful relationship. 
And he's pretty much the only one that's like something's going on. He didn't just die. Somebody's taken him. I don't know what's going on. So he starts reading all of the novels to be like, I'm trying to work out what's going on. And he gets to this this line from one of them where Misery says, "You, it's something like men can't judge me, only a higher power can judge me. And he's like, where do I know that line from? Anyway, he starts finding more and more clues and they lead him to Annie Wilkes. So he decides to pay Annie a visit um, because, and in fact, so he's, he, he starts finding all these more clues that lead to Annie Wilkes, mainly because he remembers her from her trial. And outside the trial, she had that same quote when people asked her, like, yes. whether she did or she didn't. And he's like, hang on. So he goes to the local store. He's like, does she buy Paul Sheldon books? And they're like, are you kidding? Like, she's his number one fan. And she's like, okay. He's like, yes, hope, Shag. Hope, hope, hope. Yeah, it's hope, right? And then he's like, well, has she been buying anything weird? And the shopkeeper's like, well, she's buying lots of paper that you'd print books on. And he's like, okay, something's up. So she goes and pays him a visit. Um, He gets there and he looks around and she's got this perfect story ready. She's like, I was, he's like, are you a fan of Paul Sheldon? And she's like, I'm his biggest fan. And once he died, God told me that I would need to continue his work. So I've got a typewriter in my room and I've been writing the next book. It's, it won't be as good as his, but I've been writing it. So if you want to look around the whole house, you can, because she's hidden him in the basement. She's nice. like, look around the whole house, you'll, you'll find that I'm just a regular old Annie Wilkes. Although it's weird that she wouldn't be like, don't look in my treasured memories. Look around the whole house. <laughs> don't, don't look in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, now I've got nothing to hide except for this hidden stuff. Don't, don't, don't look at that. Buster represents hope as he's at, like he doesn't he doesn't find Paul, but as he's leaving, he hears he hears something break. He runs back inside. He's like, Annie, are you okay? And he hears Paul be like, I'm down here, I'm down here. He goes to the basement door, opens it, sees Paul, and then boom, a shotgun right through his chest, a very Magic. gory shotgun death. And he's dead. And so yes. like that, our hope is gone. We had this hope. We had this side story. We had this feeling that he was going to get out. And at this point, it's like utter misery. His feet are gone. His only hope is gone. This is his life. This is where he has to leave. She then says the only way out is for us to kill each other in a murder-suicide. But Paul, concealing a can of lighter fluid in his pocket, convinces her to let him live, live long enough to finish the novel in order to give misery back to the world. And she's like, okay, I agree. When the manuscript is done, Paul asks for a cigarette and champagne, as is his usual custom when finishing a novel, and Annie complies. However, to her horror, Paul uses the lighter to set the manuscript on fire, telling her, I learnt it from you, which is fucking awesome. When Annie freaks out about the burning manuscript, Paul strikes her with the typewriter after she tries to save it, but it's totally gone. And they engage in a violent struggle with Paul suffering a gunshot wound to the shoulder from her revolver. She's got a lot of guns. Okay. He trips her, causing her to strike her head on the typewriter, which kills her, then crawls out of the room, but well, seemingly kills her, but seemingly kills her. Nice. Then crawls out of the room, but Annie recovers and attacks again. Paul grabs a metal doorstop and bashes Annie in the face, finally killing her. Hmm. 18 months later, Paul, now walking with a cane, meets his agent, Marsha, in a restaurant in New York City. The two discuss his post-misery novel and Marsha tells him about the positive early buzz. 
Paul replies that he wrote the novel for himself as a way to help deal with the horrors of his captivity. But he also has this interesting point that I want to get to at the end of this, where he's basically yes. like, in a way, I feel like Annie made me a better writer. Marsha asks if he would consider a nonfiction book about his captivity because, you know, she had such a big influence on him. But Paul, who suffers psychological trauma from the experience, declines. Paul then sees a waitress approaching him whom he hallucinates as Annie walking towards him with a knife, commenting that he still thinks about her once in a while. The waitress tells Paul that she is his number one fan, causing Paul to meekly reply, that's very sweet of you. So that's the end of Misery. It's, a, it's, it's such a that's good ending. That's a great ending. It's oh. such a good ending. Shaq, I loved that. It was so good, right? It was oh. so good. This is what this podcast is all about. But oh. I, I, I want to leave you with a thought, right? So mm. we talk about how we're almost our like sort of toxic work ethic of having to yeah. release something every week and, you know, we, we, we work too much and we need to chill. And honestly, we probably do need to chill a little bit because when Golden Child really wants to hurt me, yes. really wants to hurt me, oh, the thing they like, say- Oh, you're spending time. No, the thing they say is, you're so fired. They're like, you're so fired, Dad. And I'm like, oh, Okay, maybe, maybe work needs to take a back seat. But what I think is interesting mm. about this, and it's on the back of re-watching that film Whiplash, mm. is that to make great work, you kind of, it, you kind of have to suffer. Pain. It shouldn't be just this self-care, lovely, I look after myself and then also I create greater. Like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't quite know what I'm trying to say, but I'm like, there's a really interesting point in this book where it's like, greatness doesn't come from comfort, which I think is just this nice message hidden in this book and hidden in this film that just makes it, just makes it, just takes it to that extra level of just one of the top 10 films we've covered on Spooko. I just want to leave that pause there for a moment because I think, like, you know, you roll it out in cliches about whatever, pain is the best teacher and, you know, you walk through the fire and, and all this stuff. And, and they actually are the kind of metaphors that really speak to me in my professional life and my personal life of like, yeah, man, hard stuff. That's what I do. Um, rah, rah, rah. Uh, forged in fire and all that sort of stupid toxic bullshit that uh, I'm super embarrassed to like say out loud or like say like speaks to me. But there's something to that, right, of like it requires a sacrifice, you know, and if, you, and if you take your basic examples of like what songs did Paul McCartney write over the age of 27, um, you, you, you know, the first 10 years of songwriting versus the following 60 years of songwriting and how did the first 10 years be so incredible when compared to the following 60 <laughs> when arguably, arguably like he's improving until perhaps his late 60s, early 70s as a musician and as a songwriter. Um, and there's something to that of like, well, like you've you've done it now. Like you've you've extracted from yourself what there is to extract, and so there is something where. <laughs> Can I tell you what popped into my head? <laughs> what do you do? You remember when I was living in London in the year two thousand, and you came and visited me, and you and there was one day when I was working, and you went off to a record shop and listened to like all the new music that was playing then. This is the year two thousand. Mm. This is peak Eminem being interesting and you went off to like HMV and Charing Cross or whatever 
to listen to the new Eminem album that they had, like, and he has whatever track it is about, like, oh, I can't rap about the same subject matter I used to rap about. And you came back with this reflection of, like, oh, fuck. Like, he's going to need to find a new rhythm in order to be able to capture the same magic and in order to be able to bottle the same lightning as before, in order to walk through the same pain. And it's reflective that he's completely failed to do that in the decade and a half of data we've got since then. So perhaps... But perhaps Spooko falls off pretty soon, Shag. I'm having a pretty good day, pretty good week. Maybe we need to keep <laughs> walking through some more pain. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Reshes, what's up? Do you have a James Kahn impression up your sleeve? <laughs> hey, I'm American. Hey, hey it's, I'm from America. What's going on? <laughs> um, hey, I'm a man. Hey. I'm, I'm so glad that like doing impressions of stuff is not really a part of our friendship and never has been. Oh, my God. So I'm sure there are good impressions out there. That, um, that stand-up comedian who does JZ impressions, I was kind of like, yeah, it sounds like Jay-Z. Yeah, that's good. All right, sorry.